Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. I hope that you all are, are doing well and that you have stayed warm this week and that you are actually warm now. Thank the Lord for, uh, for heat. I was so thankful to walk in this morning and it was warm. It was good. Uh, to, to God be the glory that our fellowship together this morning uh, is, is even, even warmer than the heat that comes out of those ducks, um, for it is warming, to, warming of our hearts and our souls. And so I am delighted this morning to preach to you our next passage and our study through Exodus. So if you turn to your, in your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 19 as we continue through our journey through Exodus, and we'll begin reading in verse 16 in just a moment to finish the chapter. We are spending three weeks now, and um, it's our third week in chapter 19, so that when we get to chapter 20, we will have a firm foundation of the law, a firm foundation of the law so that it would be put in its place, and here's why. In verses 1 through 6, we saw how the Lord speaks directly to his people. He speaks directly to, uh, to Moses, to his people, and speaks essentially of his grace. He speaks of how he has saved them and brought them out of Egypt, how he bore them up on eagles' wings to do what? Not just to let them now go live in freedom and however they would like, but to bring them to himself. There's grace and there's much mercy there. He's about to give them his covenant, the covenant to them. And the reason why we hear of grace and mercy first is because this covenant is built on grace. And this grace then is what is going to define the relationship that's soon going to be in covenant, which will come in chapter 20 and so on. Second, in verses 7 through 15, shows us how the, instruct, the instructions that God gives to Moses to tell Israel on how they are to prepare to meet God. First, we are to respond by faith. They hear God's word, they hear God's message, and they respond by faith. Second, the people need to consecrate themselves. And there are four ways in which they are told to consecrate themselves, to be prepared for the Lord, so that they are set apart to be wholly devoted to a holy God. And so, therefore, they needed to be clean. Why did they need to be clean? Why do we need to be clean? Because they are defiled. We are defiled. And our defilement, their defilement, speaks of their sinfulness, which points back to Genesis chapter 3, the curse and stench of death of the fall, which is why they are unclean and which is why they are defiled. Third, the whole point of this event is to point them to the great need that they have for a mediator between them and God. And God provides that mediator, in this case in the Old Testament, through his man Moses. And now today, as we finish chapter 19, we see God not only preparing them for his coming, but now the Lord comes. And we get to see this grand event of the, of the presence of God as he condescends onto Mount Sinai to his people to give them his word. And I think that this is a powerful passage that is helpful for us to be reminded 
of who our God is. So let's look to chapter 19, starting in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai and to the top of the mountain. And the Lord God called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord, and to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Last week was a time of preparation. The three days have passed. Preparation has ended. The anticipation meter for the coming of the Lord is full. The Lord God was coming down to them. They were going to hear his voice. They were going to hear his word. They're going to receive his covenant. The time is now. This is what is called in theology a theophany. A physical manifestation of the presence of God. Of course, this is not the first time in the scriptures that we have seen the Lord reveal himself to his people like this. In the book of Genesis, God revealed himself to Abraham in such a way on the mountain. In Exodus chapter 3 at Mount Sinai, the Lord revealed himself in the burning bush to, to Moses. But here in Exodus chapter 19 is the greatest and fullest manifestation of the Lord God to all of his people at once. It is a powerful picture and a powerful time and should not be overlooked, especially right before God gives them the law. If I ask the question to you, what has been the greatest evil that man has ever perpetrated? And we had time for you and each and every one of you to answer, what would you say? One of the answers that we might hear is the Holocaust, the mass genocide and murder of people could be an answer. And certainly that is an evil that is unfathomable to think about, 
that people would be capable of such evil upon another. And yet, unfortunately, that happened. Another answer you might give, particularly those who are, want to give a more spiritual answer, would say the crucifixion of the Son of God. And absolutely, I would agree with you that at the cross is the apex of not only of the glory of God, but the apex of human sin and depravity and blindness and rebellion and hatred and an absolute disdain for the truth. For there at the cross, the Son of God, who, who came to forgive sin, who forgave sin, who healed the broken, who, who came to us, who drew near to us, and yet man chose darkness and hated the light and suppressed the truth. Jesus was delivered up to die on the cross like a traitor, like a thief, like a murderer, to die on the cross as if he was the sinner. The most innocent of sin and evil was killed for sin and evil. And of course we know in the glorious truth that we not just weep and tear up over the cross, but we boast in the cross. And we boast in the cross because we know that it was by God's sovereign hand to deliver his son over to evil men so that he would die as a sacrifice and to take not only human punishment and torment on the cross, but also Jesus willingly submitted himself to bear the wrath of God, to pay the penalty for sin, to be the substitute for sin. And as the scriptures tell us that Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father and to go to the cross. Yes, this was evil. But also the cross brought about our salvation. Another answer to the question, what has been the greatest evil that man has ever been perpetrated? I think this next answer goes right along with the cross, and that is this, is that humanity, man, it's how, how man or humanity trivializes, we lessen, we downplay, we deny, we reject, we marginalize the Lord as Lord. And we, as men, sinners, we attempt in our own futile ways to rob him of his own glory. And since the very beginning, in Genesis, it has been the evil one and the seeds of the serpent that use this very tactic to trivialize the seriousness and the severity of the Lord God. The serpent said to Adam and to Eve, did God really say? And this was not only to cause doubt in the, in the word of God, but it was to trivialize the character and nature of God. Does God really mean what he says? Will he really back up what he says? Because it looks like he doesn't want you to eat this because he's really jealous of you. 
does God really say? That's trivializing God. That's reducing God to a mere weak and finite human being. Paul picks up on this same idea in Romans chapter 1 and says, For although they knew God, they knew God. God has revealed himself in, in creation. This is what Romans 1 gets to. God has revealed himself in creation. He's clearly revealed. They knew God, yet they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and the foolishness of their hearts were darkened. And so here is man's greatest failure and sin. And that is, of all mankind, is summed up right here, that God has clearly revealed himself to us, that he is glorious, that he is God, and he is creator, and that he is worthy of the worship and adoration of his creation. And yet, man does not honor him, nor give thanks to him. Man's heart, mind, and body, and soul does not honor God, but always seeks to attempt to rob him of his glory for themselves. The greatest being in all the universe, the creator and stainer of all things, the only one who is holy and righteous, who is omnipotent in power, the giver of life, the taker of life, and all the good blessings in this life, man gives who is Savior, who is Redeemer, from man, nothing, crickets. And the lack of gratitude, the lack of honoring, the lack of the, lack of the recognition of God's blessings are astounding. Even in considering of my own heart, how astounding it is, how little gratitude I have at so many times. And the consequences, according to Romans chapter 1, back there in verse 21, we see is this constant, perpetual, ongoing devastation of humankind descending into deeper darkness. For the lack of gratitude and the honoring of God as God. And this attitude toward the Lord and the things of the Lord is so pervasive, even today, in our own culture. Our culture boasts in a post-Christian climate. And to speak publicly of a sovereign God, a powerful God, a judging God, a loving God, and a saving God, a holy God, and Jesus Christ as the Savior who gives grace but demands your repentance and obedience to his word, you will just be laughed off the stage or marginalized as a crazy person who wears the sandwich board in the middle of Times Square that yells out, repent for the end is near. Brothers and sisters, the serpent's lies are still 
in full effect. And even in the so-called church, quote-unquote churches who, who look how they believed in the same lies, where their message is all about love and acceptance and tolerance and happiness and prosperity and relationships and people, all devoid from a holy and righteous God. Some of those things that we just said are good. They're worth preaching of. Oh, here's the lie. The lie is, is all of those without a holy and righteous God and the substitutionary atonement of a Savior. But what about the fear of God? What about the majesty of God? What about the holiness of God? What about the awesomeness of God? The very things that, that God's Word teaches us over and over and over again that would terrify the sinner of the judgment of God. Sermons used to be preached like the sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sermons, excuse me. Were preached to pierce the hearts of sinful men that would terrify them of the just wrath of God without the grace of Christ and salvation through Him alone. Now, I say all of that this morning, not to get my blood pressure up, but because here at the end of chapter 19 in Exodus, we have painted a picture for us. The picture of a terrifyingly glorious, awesome God. A picture that brothers and sisters and friends, we need to be reminded of. And I say that because it is a picture that should fearfully encourage us. A song that was written in 1988 by Rich Mullins took up the theologically, shook up the theologically comforter, comfortable, not with bad theology, but with the reality of what theology teaches and implies and applies to us about God. Truth that we can sing loudly and proclaim apologetically, he sang this. And I'm sure many of y'all know this song very well. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. The Lord wasn't joking when he kicked them out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very soon. So you better be believing that our God is an awesome God. And when the sky was starless in the void of the night, our God is an awesome God. He spoke into the darkness and he created the light. Our God is an awesome God. Judgment and wrath he poured out on Sodom. Mercy and grace he gave us at the cross. I hope that you have not too quickly forgotten that our God is an awesome God. And the chorus goes on to sing that our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Amen. We better be believing. We better never forget that our God 
It's an awesome God. What a line. What a reminder to us as Israel is about to receive the law of God. They encounter an awesome God. And it puts them firmly in their place as it should put us firmly in our place. So I believe that first and foremost from our passage this morning and seeing that our God is an awesome God is that this whole event is meant to bring to us and to them a healthy amount of fear upon us. I know the word awesome is used like a junk drawer word, and it's been that way for as long as I can remember. It's just another adjective to be used to describe a noun or a verb that really doesn't fit its definition, but we'll throw it out there anyways. I think my generation learned it from the Ninja Turtles. However, awesome is meant to describe something that is truly awe-inspiring. It's the kind of moments or events that, that leave us almost terrified and speechless and, and taken back. It, it puts us in our place, the place of being small and little and finite and fallible and weak. I remember the first time seeing the, uh, the space shuttle take off as a kid, launch as a kid. I've seen it hundreds of times. And seeing it push through the sky with the streak of light behind it and a massive smoke trail from, the, from this light all the way to the ground as it continues to go all the way up into the sky till you couldn't see it no more. And just when you thought it was over, seconds would go, go by and maybe almost a minute and then boom! Boom, you'd hear this massive boom that would shake the whole county. And that boom was a sonic boom as the, as the space shuttle was busting through the atmosphere, trying to hit, listen to this, trying to hit 17,000 miles per hour so that it could get into maximum orbit. That was awesome. And as a kid, I'm like, whoa, amazing. Windows would rattle. Flying over the Grand Canyon one time at 30,000 feet and looking down upon it, that was awesome. Having a lightning bolt literally strike just a few feet from you, that was terrifyingly awesome. Awesome is not your taco. Awesome is not a pair of shoes. Awesome is for something that creates a majestic awe that is almost terrifying to us, or is terrifying to us. And everything about this scene here at the end of Exodus 19 is designed to convey the supreme majesty, authority, and overwhelming, terrifying power of a holy, righteous, omnipotent God. And the whole Exodus experience to the people of Israel, and even to us in some sense, has should, have, has should have already communicated to them of the awesomeness of God. They watched the Lord God dismantle Egypt one step at a time with his outstretched arm, and Israel 
rec even recognize that in their song back in chapter 15, verse 11. They even sang, God is awesome in glory. But now, the all-powering display of God's power is now turned towards them. An amazing scene over the mountain of a thunderstorm and volcano and earthquake all mixed into one. Uh, I don't know what you'd say that you would say, earth thundernado. All there at the mountain. And as verse 16 says that there was thunders and lightning and a thick cloud that descended upon the mountain. They heard, they heard loud trumpet blasts. In verse 18, they saw the fire and the smoke that rose from the mountain like the, like the kiln. And, the, and then the mountain shook, right? An earthquake as the mountain shook before them. In each of these elements, they are, they are all woven together like a tapestry or, or like an orchestra, all pointing to this, this fact that God, that the Lord God has come and He's directly revealing Himself to them. Thunder and lightning were signs of His, of his, of his power and His might. The thick cloud that was descending upon the mountain was a, is a sign of, of the mystery of God and the holiness of God. That though he is coming, man still can't handle all. They can't handle it all. It's a sign of his Shekinah glory. The fire was a, a sign of his purity and his holiness. Fire, we, we like fire, right? Fire draws us in for its, for its warmth. But if you get too close, it it burns. We are attracted to God's beauty in so many ways, but when it comes to His holiness and His power, it can destroy us. And the sound of the trumpet blast, I found this so fascinating, that the sound of the trumpet blast that became louder and louder was announcing to them the King is coming. The King is coming as as the, they would get louder and louder, it was announcing to them that this king was coming to give them his word. The king was coming to him, and this is his awesome presence. And so this isn't the only time the Lord God has revealed himself in these ways. We saw that earlier from, uh, in, in Genesis and in Exodus chapter 3. But also later we see the same things as God reveals himself sort of in these same elements. In Luke chapter 9, in the story of the transfiguration, when Jesus is transformed, transfigured into his glorified self, and he's dazzling white, and, and uh, with no coincidence, there's Moses. <laughs> there on the mountain with him. And Peter and John are there, and they're, they're baffled, and yet they're worshiping the Lord. And then in that moment, in that time, then it says that a cloud overshadowed them. On the mountain. And then the, the disciples became afraid. As they heard the voice of God. This is my son. My chosen son. Listen to him. Same scene. Same kind of scene. And the same purposes of the presence of God. With the same response by the people of God. Fear. When in the garden... As Jesus was about to be arrested, they asked, where's Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus said, 
I am here. And when he did so, those who were asking, they drew back and they fell to the ground at the power and presence of God. The response of the Roman centurion is Jesus hung on the cross. But as Jesus died on the cross, though, remember there was darkness that fell upon the land and the earth shook. And then the Roman centurion, his response is what? Surely this is the Son of God. In Revelation chapter 4, it's described there, the throne of God that came flashes of lightning and thunder and seven torches of fire. And throughout Revelation, we see the description of the second coming of Jesus described as the coming of lightning. We see that also in the Gospels. In Revelation chapter 16, when the seventh bowl was poured out, there will be flashes of lightning and thunder and earthquakes. And it says in verse 18, such as there had never been before on the earth. And so we understand then that this scene is telling of the presence of God. And no wonder then do we get the response that we get from the people of the presence of God as they witness this awesome display of God and it says that they trembled. We don't want to quickly move past that. In fact, we read last week from Hebrews chapter 12 that, that Hebrews tells us that Moses, and I think even Deuteronomy says this as well, that Moses even trembled with fear. They feared God. That's what trembling means. They were, they were in fear. They were in fear of their lives because they are now in the presence of God. The proper way to respond to God's glory is with reverence and awe and a healthy fear. And we live in a time when irreverence defines the church. But of course, they don't call it that. It used to be that cathedrals were built throughout Europe and throughout the world with amazing architecture, not just to not just to boast in man, but they were built that way to communicate that all who come here to this place know that they have come to worship an awesome God. It was to put them in their place. After the Reformation, churches were, church buildings were built with lifted high pulpits that would stand over people and symbolizing the supremacy of not of man, but the supremacy of the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God as it is over them. Church buildings now are built around people, their comfort, and for their visibility, like a movie theater. The church is quite casual nowadays about God and how we are to approach Him. John Piper at one time diagnosed the church as making man big in the church and God the Creator small. What we think, what we want, what, we, what feels good to us, what's appealing to us and to our senses, what's appealing to our desires, that is what becomes more important. The exaltation of our feelings instead of trembling in fear 
from coming to the King of Kings. And I think our passage this morning is clear to the Israelites and not only to us that we do not want to treat the Lord our God casual or irreverent or want to put God in second and or in submission to what we want or to how we feel. Our God is to be feared. Jesus spoke to his disciples about fear. And fear isn't a bad thing. Fear actually can save your life if fear is put in its place. It's a, it's a good thing. Jesus talks to his disciples about persecution, and he makes very clear what persecution is going to look like and how it's going to be for them. That they're going to witness what it's going to, what's going to happen to them, and they say, if, you, if this happens to the master, what do you think is going to happen to you? And then he tells them about fear, and he encourages them. In Matthew 10, 28, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So there's fear in its place. Not to fear those who can kill the body because they can't kill the soul. But here's placing fear in the right place. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about God, the Lord God. Fear God, not man. Ill-placed fear leads only to slavery, the fear of man. For rather, we are called to fear God because he is the one who is sovereign over our souls. That's the healthy fear. That's one place, right? That's why we put our faith in the true and living God. For our God is an all-consuming fire. He is awesome. To draw near to him, brothers and sisters, is no casual thing, but we fear him. And second to seeing our awesome God is that we must hear the Lord. Not only fear the Lord, but hear the Lord. The very presence of God has come down to them, has condescended to them. And why? Was it just to put on a spectacle? Was it just to make a sign, just to do a sign and leave? No, it was God came to give them his word to speak. In verse 19, the Lord God spoke to Moses in the thunder. In verse 21, the Lord spoke to Moses, telling him to go back down and warn the people to not get close to the mountain, to tell the priests to consecrate themselves, lest they approach God in an unholy manner. And that the Lord God would strike them dead, right? They will cause them to perish. Again, we hear the severity of God. The severity of, the God, of our Lord God for his holiness. But also we hear of the care of God. Because I think it's very clear in these warnings that God does not want them to die. He doesn't want to make an example out of some of them. So he speaks to Moses. 
And he tells Moses. And Moses converses back. Basically tells the Lord, like, I've already done that, Lord. I, I know, you, you told us not to come close. I, I told them. And God warns them again. Verse 24, answers back. You better go back and check again. This is a serious place and a serious moment. <clears throat> sort of like when you ask your kids to go clean their room and then later you ask again, did you clean, their, did you clean your room? But you already know the answer to the question and you know the status of the room and you know the answer, you know the information already and you don't let on. You get the answer, inevitably it is, yeah, it's clean. And you warn them back, or you, you tell them again, right? Because you don't want them to get in trouble. You might want to go check it again, right? And since this is what the Lord's telling you, you might want to go tell the people again. This conversation taking place between Moses and the mediator, or me, Moses the mediator and the Lord, was all to do what? Was to prepare them as seriously as possible to hear the word of God. The whole scene, the fear, the trembling, all of it, is all about preparing them to hear the word of God, that God is with them and that he is speaking. All these forces of nature are proving his presence and his authority of his word that he is there and he is not silent. And I tell you that this absolutely matters because we need to know, we need to know if there is a God and if there is a God, has he spoken to us? If there is a God, has he spoken to us? Has he given us his word? Has he communicated to us in a way that we can understand? As small, finite creatures are, very limited. Can we understand God's word? Is God's word something that transcends time, but yet continues and comes through human history? Is his message good? Is his message authoritative? And here the Lord God is proving that he has come and that he has spoken. The Lord God, the creator of all, that he has revealed himself, not just in creation. Yes, Revelation, or Romans chapter 1, absolutely true. God has revealed himself. We are left without an excuse. But God has also spoken to us in his word. He has not just given us the revelation of one moment in time on a mountain at one place. But God has spoken to us in the greatest ways. He has given us his word. And it's pretty exhaustive. It's not the pamphlet in front of your chair. And he has done so to show us him. Again, one of, the greatest, one of the greatest works that the evil one has done has to convince us, even us, convincing our hearts and convincing our minds that, that God's word is boring. 
and that God's Word is not entertaining, that God's Word is not relevant for our modern, modern age. But God has spoken, and if God has spoken, if that is absolutely true, then there's nothing that can come in comparison to it. There's nothing that can come in comparison. He has spoken to you. He has spoken to me in His Word. And He has written it down to show us that not only has He come, but He has brought to us salvation that comes by grace, that comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. So in the same scene, God condescending in His power and might and grace to bring His presence and to give His Word, we see the same thing in the incarnation of Christ. When Christ was born, what did the angels do? They sang and they declared the glory and majesty of Christ. Jesus born is what? The Word of God and the presence of God for us. It's the same, and he's come of the not of the perishable seed, but the imperishable, giving us this living and abiding word of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God is inspired by God. Therefore, it is the inerrant word of God. It is without error. If, they, if there is a problem that you perceive, the problem is not God's word. It's you. You need to submit. You need to figure it out. You need to think. You need to meditate. You need to pray. Come talk to the elders. Ask a brother. Ask a sister. And repent and believe. It's inspired. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I'm throwing out all the good ones. But as for you, continue what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. So continue what you've learned, what you firmly believe, knowing that from you, from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's talking about Timothy. He's talking to Timothy and how Timothy learned the word of God. He learned it from his family. And what did he learn from his family? The sacred writings, the word of God. And what is the word of God? They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And why? Why are the sacred writings, the scripture, the word of God sufficient? Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, even friends this morning, God has spoken. He has spoken to us in his word, and he has spoken for our good, and for our salvation, and for our sanctification, that we would be ready for him. And one more, here's a classic, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow in discerning the thoughts, the intentions of the heart. This is the word of God. And yet there is a movement that has been going on for such a long time now that has been making a division between God and his word. That you can follow God but not follow the Bible. And the problem is, God has come and God has spoken. And Exodus 19 makes clear, as the rest of the scripture is testifying to it as well, that God has spoken. We do not get to make up God's words. And he has spoken through his prophets and his apostles. God's word has been given to us here in the scriptures. And when God speaks in his word, it is always authoritative and sufficient. And if God has spoken on the mountain to Moses, then he has spoken to us this morning in his word. And showing us and telling us that our God is an awesome God. So hear it, because he is not silent. Hear the word as God speaks. And lastly, what are we to do with this awesome God? Why the fear and why has he spoken? And the reason why he has come and why he has spoken to us it's because we are called to trust in the Lord. So fear the Lord, hear the Lord, trust the Lord. How simple is that? And like the last, like last week, we talked about how to prepare ourselves to meet the Lord. And we do so in faith. And that's absolutely the point. But faith and trust that does so correctly and appropriately. And so God tells Moses and to the people, he says four times to them, don't touch the mountain or you'll perish. He tells the priests to consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Again, God's showing them and, and, and us that we cannot. What does it mean? We not only don't touch it, I don't want you to die, but he's showing them and he's showing us that we cannot come to the Lord on our own terms. He sets the terms. Don't touch. But doesn't God, even in that whole scene, provide a way? Again, we have to state the obvious. Because the way is, is Moses. Moses is clearly touching the mountain. He's going up and down the mountain. I think this is the, now the, the fourth time of him ascending and descending. And the whole point is this, that the only way that we can come into the presence of a holy and awesome God who leaves us in fear and trembling without judgment is that we come to the Lord God through a mediator. We talked about this last week. But here again... Man, in our very futile ways, we try to attempt to come to God on our own. 
We try to come on our own terms rather than trusting in the, the mediator that God has sent to us. As God is saying there, don't try it. Here we are. I'm going to conjure up my own ways. I'm going to be good. I'm going to keep the commandments. I'm going to make up rules do unto others. And I'm going to call it golden. And I'm going to make it high like the golden calf in my life and say that if I do unto others in the way that I want to be treated, then surely God will let me into his heaven. Then surely I deserve to go. My good has outweighed my bad. I give to others. I've gone to church. I go to church. And on and on. We come up with our own terms and our own ways. And all we are doing over and over and over again is that we are attempting in futility to build our towers to get to the mountain and yet fail. Dramatically and drastically and devastatingly. And some will even try to ignore this great doctrine of God. And again, only talk about the, the universal love of God and the acceptance of God and the niceness of God to everyone, no matter what. And they shape God in their own minds. There's no fear of judgment. In fact, they just deny Exodus 19 even happened. But the problem with that again is that if God hasn't come, if God hasn't spoken, then what's the point? What a colossal waste of time for them. But as we see and as we believe, because God has come and God has spoken, that His word is true. And it's true the same as it was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so it's telling us, dear sinner, you need a mediator. You need someone between God and man. And so just like last week, this brings us back to Hebrews chapter 12. That those who are in Christ, we have not been brought to this mountain. We have not been brought to Mount Sinai with fire and thunder and earthquakes. But we have come to a better mountain. We have come to Mount Sinai, the city of the living God, to be counted through a better mediator. That is Jesus Christ, who is a mediator of the new and better covenant. The covenant that is in his blood and that speaks a better word. That's 18 through 24 in Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus is the mediator from God. Who is God. And the only way, brothers and sisters, listen, that we could even come before and come close and draw near to an awesome God is by trusting in him alone. Brothers and sisters, do you know why God hasn't showed himself in fire, lightning, and thunder this morning? Is it because he's any less awesome than he was on Sinai? Do you know why I'm assuming that most of you are not trembling in fear right now before the awesome God? Why you're not trembling in fear before a holy God for your life? 
And the answer to those questions are the same. And the answer is this, because the better has come. The better mediator and the better covenant. And if you are in Christ, then you have come to Christ by faith in him alone. Meaning you have trusted in him, in Jesus Christ, for your redemption, for your salvation, and for the forgiveness of sin. And once you feared him, maybe it's when you heard the gospel and the scales fell off your eyes and you fell in fear because of your sin. And without the grace and mercy of Christ, you would deserve eternity and hell and damnation justly. But because of the mercy of God, you felt the fear of God so that that one time you felt that fear and the reality of your sin before a holy and righteous God. But then the sweetness of joy came. That fear gave way to joy because perfect love casts out fear. And that love is the love of Christ, the love of the gospel, that God would send his only son to perish, to die, so that you could be raised up and brought into new life and live for the glory of God and to be a perfect display of the awesomeness of God and the glory of God. You live as a son to thunder for the glory of God. And we preach the gospel with fire. Trust in the Lord. And as Hebrews 10, 28, it closes out that section. It says, therefore, let us be grateful. (laughs) Back to gratitude again from Romans 1. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All these kingdoms of this earth, they are, they are shaken. And they are passing away. And it says, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. That is reverent in all. You see the, you see the heart attitude? Grace doesn't, doesn't make us flip it to God. But as our heavenly Father, who is still Lord, God, and King, who's announced by trumpets, we come with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So come in reverence, come in awe, but come appropriate. That's acceptable worship, and that is by faith. By faith alone. And faith in that perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, as we talked from the very beginning about what he has done on the cross. For it is only through him that we can come to the mountain. The only way we can come to the mountain, the only way we can come behind the veil is through Jesus Christ. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Fear the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. And trust the Lord. And all of God's people say, Amen. And amen.